Stillman, uh, if you remember watching that show, and uh, boldly proclaiming the gospel for seven minutes on NBC, uh, and uh, uncensored, Megyn Kelly just let her go. Uh, and uh, the question I had to ask as I watched it was, why was Kelly, or Kathy Lee Gifford so bold, so bold talking about uh, her faith? Uh, how could she rejoice talking about her husband lying dead in her arms? How could she praise the Lord that Billy Graham uh, is in heaven? And the answer is because she has grasped the greatness of her salvation. It's the same reason that my friend, when he was dying of cancer a number of years ago, I've shared about Andrew many times, two young kids, not even out of his 30s, early into his 30s, and how he, with great comfort, could know that he was going to be in the arms of his father, heavenly father, and how he could find comfort facing death because he grasped the greatness and the hope of his salvation. It's the same reason that missionaries can go into foreign lands facing possible death and do it with great zeal. Why? Because they've grasped the greatness of their salvation. You know, Peter, the Apostle Peter, wrote a letter to a bunch of Christians who were scattered across Asia Minor, and they were persecuted. They were scared. They were discouraged because they were living out their faith uh, and, and challenging the beliefs and the values and, and, and the immorality of their neighbors. They were experiencing persecution and opposition and rejection and, and torture and threats. They were being thrown into prison. Uh, they were threatened with death, and some, some were even being put to death. And so Peter writes a letter to them. He writes a letter to encourage them, but to teach them how to live out their faith in the midst of all this hostility. But Peter knew something. He knew that if they were going to grab onto his teaching, they first had to grasp the greatness of their salvation. Because when you grasp the greatness of your salvation, it gives you comfort, it gives you strength, it gives you encouragement, it gives you motivation, even in the toughest of times. But the flip side is true also. If you're not grasping the greatness of your salvation, then when you find yourself in the midst of troubling circumstances, when you face sickness and death, when you face tragedy, when you face opposition because of your faith, you will be discouraged. You will become afraid. You will feel rejected you will begin to question your faith. And so the question I ask you at the outset is, have you grasped the greatness of your salvation? We've sung a lot about it this morning, and we've heard about it already. There are a lot of us who profess to be followers of Jesus, who are living out our faith often in our own strength. We come to church. We may even be members of a church. We participate in ministry and yet are living out our faith not on the basis of the foundation of the greatness of our salvation. Makes me think of a builder, someone who, de who decides they want to learn how to build a home. And so they sign up for all the courses at Home Depot, but they skip the first one on how to build a foundation. And you can imagine Arnie and others, that I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to building a house, but I can imagine not understanding the foundation that you build the rest of the house on would lead to a very shaky, insecure, wobbly home. And if you're not grasping the greatness of your salvation, on what foundation are you living out your faith? 
Last week we began our series on, on 1 Peter, and, and right off the bat I, I raised the question of relevancy, because 1 Peter is a letter written to the persecuted church. And how relevant is that for you and I today? And, and hopefully I, I led you to a conclusion that, that even us today living in North America, in Canada, in, in greater Peterborough, can agree that we live in a world that's growing increasingly unfriendly to our faith. The persecution might be different. The attacks might take on a different form. But when we live out our faith, when we live out uh, our values and our beliefs and our different priorities that are different from our neighbors, we will be met with opposition. And so we came to the question last week, which is really the theme question for the whole letter of 1 Peter, is how do we live out our faith in a world that's unfriendly towards our faith? And not just to endure, but how do we live out our faith in a way that we leave a lasting impact? How do we survive and thrive in a world that's not so faith-friendly? And uh, that's, that, that's the, the uh, slide that you'll see. It's on the front of your bulletin. That's the question that we're going to keep going back to. How do we survive and thrive in a not-so-faith friendly world. And so we began looking just at Peter's salutation in 1 Peter, and I'll invite you to uh, read uh, along with me, or listen to me as I read. We're we're still in the first two verses, the salutation. I'm using a pew Bible today. I left my cheater Bible uh, at Bible study last Sunday, and uh, it's got much bigger font uh, than this, so I will hopefully not uh, butcher the first two verses. But let me read the first two verses to you at first Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And uh, last week... Uh, as I said, we just barely got into the salutation, and there's two things that I wanted you to notice from the salutation. Uh, and that was, first of all, how Peter actually begins his letter. He doesn't go into some great defense of his apostleship. He doesn't give us a whole bunch of details about the geographical location of these believers that are scattered across what is modern-day Turkey. He doesn't go back to uh, psalms of comfort and, and, and how God of, the God of mercy uh, shows pity on, on his children who are being unjustly uh, mistreated. Uh, rather, he begins with a discourse on Trinitarian salvation. He, he explains to them how God the Father, how God the Spirit, and how God the Son has worked together to bring about their salvation. And that might not be where we would begin, but that's where Peter began. What I want to show you today, and as we continue over the next few uh, sessions in 1 Peter, is Peter's on to something. Kathy Lee Gifford has figured it out. That when you grasp the greatness of your salvation, it gives you comfort and hope and encouragement and strength, even in the midst of the most difficult times. The second thing that I wanted to highlight last week was what Peter labels believers. He calls them elect exiles. Elect, meaning God-chosen, and exiles, meaning foreigners or, or, or strangers. Christians are chosen by God 
But because of that, they become strangers in the world. And it's important that we keep those two phrases together because it helps us to understand the simultaneous relationship that we live out, our relationship to the world and our relationship to God. And so last week, we just camped out on that relationship to the world. That as followers of Jesus, we are strangers in the world. We are strangers in the world because our true home is in heaven. We are temporary residents on earth because our true citizenship is in heaven. But I showed you last week that Peter goes beyond that. Because that can just become a watered-down metaphor, as I said last week. Peter goes beyond that to say to some of the readers who are actually living in their very hometowns, you, because of your faith in Jesus, have become a stranger even in your own hometown. Because something happened in your life. You embraced the gospel and you switched your allegiance from the world to God. And as a result, you haven't moved physically, but you've moved spiritually. Your salvation has made you a stranger in the world. And then we talked about how the fact, not only were they strangers in the world, but they were scattered strangers in the world. And they literally were scattered. Because of persecution, they found themselves spread across the whole Roman Empire uh, in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And I'm sure that the enemy thought they were enjoying the upper hand. But God knew what he was doing. He allowed that persecution because as believers were scattered, so too was the gospel. And we see that the gospel message spreads all across the Roman Empire. But you know, this week it kind of bothered me a bit about where I left us. Because I felt like I was being real macho. And I know that might be hard to believe that I was coming across macho. But I talked and almost made jest of us being strangers. That we're strangers in the world. And it's true. Like if we choose to live out our faith loudly and boldly, we are strangers in the world. Live out your faith at school, no matter what the cost, you're a stranger in the world. Live out Christian values in your marriage, you're a stranger in this world. I gave a bunch of different examples. But I realize that most of us, we want to be popular. We don't want to be considered strange. We want to be accepted. And the reality is living out our faith loudly and boldly is difficult. The temptation for us is to live our faith out quietly. Even participate in the things of the world so we don't stand out. And and some of you struggle with that. I struggle with that. And so I felt bad that I was being macho about us all being strangers in the world and welcome to the club. And the whole, same with the whole idea of being scattered. The, the reality is we are scattered. Many of us don't live in this neighborhood. It's, it's, it's something that the elders have considered when we keep uh, casting our vision, that we want to work together to see people come to faith in Christ and return to faith in Christ. The reality is a lot of us leave this place on Sunday and we don't come back till next Sunday. We may not see any of, of our family here for a week. And the reality is, Some of us are living out our existence Saturday, uh, Monday through Saturday in in a context that's not really faith-friendly. Like Graham was even just sharing with me about about high school. We were talking about the language in in movies on on Netflix. And he said, Dad, like, like I'm surrounded by it. And and that's, that's his existence Saturday through Monday. We are scattered. And for some of us, it's really difficult We feel isolated. We feel all alone. We feel surrounded by opposition. 
And Peter understands that because that's what his readers are going through. So in verse 2, he turns our attention to our relationship to God. How does it make you feel to know that you're special and loved? Is it a good feeling? Last weekend, my brother, who pastors a church in London, had a party at his church. It was his 60th birthday. And then on Saturday, he went out for, wife, uh, for, for a, a birthday dinner with his wife. Uh, and then on Saturday, unbeknownst to him, he got dragged to Toronto with a little pin on his shirt saying, happy 60th birthday, and met all of our, the Ontario family of my family at, at a restaurant. And he was so tickled that we would all give up our Saturday to meet him in, in, in Leaside in Toronto to celebrate his 60th birthday. Because it feels special. It uh, feels great to know that you're special and loved. Knowing that you're special and loved makes coping with difficult and uncomfortable situations much easier. There's been so many times where I've been in situations where it's out of my comfort zone, where I feel out of my element. I, I'm feeling nervous about what's going to go on. But if Allison is with me, it is a totally different feeling. Because I know that no matter what anyone else thinks about me, she loves me. You may wonder why, but she she loves me. And she, she chose me. She chose me out of anyone that she could have chosen from. She chose to be with me. And that makes me feel wonderful and special. How does it feel to be promoted at work? Or to, or to be set apart for, for special favor at work. It feels great. It makes long hours and, and, and hard work a whole lot easier to deal with. And that's what Peter wants his readers to understand. They might be strangers in the world in relation to their neighbors. They might be scattered across Asia Minor. But they're chosen by God. And the same is true for us. We may feel rejected because of our lifestyle, because of our beliefs, because of our behavior. We may really feel like strangers in this world. But God chose you. And Peter says this so that we would feel real special and know that we're loved. But this brings out the elephant in the room. Zach, here we go. The doctrine of election. It's caused many debates in the church. Lots of discouragement. I personally know someone who left the faith because of the doctrine of election and all the other doctrines that are related to it. Let me start by saying two things. When Peter talks about God electing, God choosing. In fact, almost anywhere where you read a writer of Scripture talk about election, the purpose is to encourage and to comfort the people they are writing to. Election is a a treasure of the believer. Knowing that God has chosen us is to bring us great comfort. The second thing I wanted to say about it is this. That there's mystery and paradox that goes along with the doctrine of election. 
The doctrine of election is something that our finite minds can't fully grasp. I believe that the doctrine of election is something that we believe but we don't fully understand. You see, there's a mystery between how God sovereignly chooses and we have a responsibility to believe and to put our faith and trust in Jesus. And I got to admit, I, I can't comprehend it in my mind. How God sovereignly chooses. How we're responsible to believe. How God's desire is that none would perish and that everyone would come to a saving relationship with His Son. My mind, my finite mind doesn't figure out how that all computes. And I would say that those who say they have figured it all out have put God in a box. So it's meant to comfort us. But there is a mystery and there is a paradox to the doctrine of election. It's important to understand that the one biblically... The question isn't, why does God choose some and pass over others? Biblically, the question is, why does God save anybody? Because none of us are worthy. All of us are deserving of the penalty of sin. Anything that any Christian has is strictly because of God's sovereign grace. Okay, so I got that out of the way. The elephant's going to run back into the pages in a moment. But let, let, let's move on. So we get into verse 2 and we come across three phrases that further define our relationship to God. That, that describe further the elect. That define for us how God the Father, God the Spirit, and how God the Son work together, I believe in sequence, to bring us to salvation, uh, uh, to a saving relationship uh, with God through Jesus. And so in verse 2, we come across that first phrase. The elect have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So here's the elephant again. So the elect have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now let me say this, the question, Ben and I were talking about this last Sunday, the question really isn't about whether God chooses. Theologians and Bible scholars, it's hard not to agree because it's written so many places uh, in Scripture. The question is, what is the basis on which God makes his choice? And so the question is surrounding that word foreknowledge. The Father chooses according to his foreknowledge. What does foreknowledge mean? And let me try to break it down and make it fairly simple. And I'll, I'll use me as an example. Did God choose me because he knew that when I was six years old, I would give my life to Jesus at Crusaders Bible Club Camp in Omimi? Or did God choose me independent of anything I would or could do, but based solely on his sovereign grace. That's really the question. That is the debate. I'm not going to force you to believe either side because there are people who can defend either side probably more eloquently than I can speak to you. But I will give you my opinion. 
My opinion is this, is that when you look at the word foreknowledge in Scripture, when it's in this context, I believe that it's speaking beyond just God having knowledge or information about a person. But rather that, that God chooses on the basis of His sovereign purposes and plan. That God chooses for Himself a people before those people are even formed. If you go down to verse 20 in 1 Peter. Now, if you're looking at the NIV, they've changed the word, uh, so it's not as clear to see. But in verse 20, we find the exact same word as we find in verse 2 for foreknowledge. Peter is saying, it's because of the blood of Jesus that you have been redeemed. And look what he says in verse 20. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. The word chosen, if you have an ESV or a New American Standard, or if you were looking at a Greek Bible, is the exact Greek word as we find in verse 2. What it says is God foreknew Jesus before the creation of the world. So if it meant that he just simply knew and had information about Jesus, it doesn't really make sense. I sure hope God the Father knows the other part of the Trinity, God the Son, uh, before the, the world was created. And that he had information about him. It doesn't make sense. What it means here is that God chose. Before the world was created, before Adam and Eve were created, before there was even sin, God chose and planned according to his purposes and will that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. And so here's the mystery again. God is freely determined, and I'll use me again. God is freely determined to offer someone as ungodly as me salvation. He freely determined that he would send his son to die on a cross so that if I would believe and put my faith and trust in his son, I would be saved and have eternal life. But at the same time, God knew me before I was even created, before I was born. He knew me, and he loved me, and he chose me, and he took the initiative. And he determined to save me, and he did. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he knew you before you were born. And he loved you, and he chose you, and he determined to save you, and he did. And Peter's writing to these discouraged readers, saying, I know the situation you're in. You feel rejected by the world, but God chose you. Before you were even born, he knew you, and he loved you, and he chose you, and he has saved you, and he's placed you wherever you are. He has planted wherever you find yourself in to, to accomplish his purpose and his plan for your life that's greater than you could ever imagine. So bloom where you're planted. Expect a harvest where God has put you. And so the elect are chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. The other two phrases, I'm going to cover them really quickly. The second phrase is through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God's choosing is made operative in the life of those who come to faith in Jesus by the Spirit. Martin Luther said that he could never have understood, believed, or come to Jesus if it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's true. It is the Holy Spirit 
who grabs hold of our life. It's the Holy Spirit who draws us to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the message of the gospel and helps us to understand it. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. It's the Holy Spirit that leads us to that moment of decision where we decide whether we are going to put our faith in Jesus or whether we're not going to put our faith in Jesus. No one is saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. No one grows to become more like Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And I can't tell you how much comfort that truth has brought to me as a father. The times that Allison and I have grieved over not being able to convince, to debate, to use apologetics, to, to shake our children to the point of belief and commitment... And I read a book, was by John MacArthur on raising children, and he made the point. That's not your job. You teach, you model. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict and to draw your child to the Lord. Pray that God the Spirit would do a work in your children. And if you're a parent and you want to see your child come to the Lord or grow deeper in their relationship with the Lord, pray that the Holy Spirit continues to do a work in their life. Auburn, as we carry out our vision, we want to see people that live in this neighborhood and our own neighborhoods because we're scattered. We want to see people come to Christ and come back to their faith in Christ. Pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work through you and in the lives of those people. I don't know why God operates that way. I don't know why he operates and, and, and carries out his purposes uh, on, on, the, on the prayers of his saints, but he does. We need to be people of prayer. When we catch this vision here at Auburn, it doesn't mean we've got to do, 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 and do. We should be first praying, praying, and praying that the Holy Spirit does his work. And the goal of father, the Father choosing and the result of the Holy Spirit doing his work is that last phrase. Obedience in Jesus and sprinkling by his blood. Obedience here is synonymous with, with saving faith. Just how Paul would use it. That a person would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That they would have a positive response to the gospel message. That they would give their life and their trust to, to the person and the work of Jesus. And the result of that is that they are sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Which sounds really awkward and weird. I agree. I understand. But the original readers knew what it was talking about. It brought them back to Exodus 24. After God through Moses had given the Ten Commandments. And they'd read them and the people said, yeah, we, we, we've heard it. We believe it. We want to make a commitment. This, this is a time of decisive commitment. We want to enter into a covenant. And so some bulls were killed and the blood, Moses was splattering it on the people. Uh, an indication that they wanted to enter into a covenant by blood with the Father. Well, this morning we talked about another covenant. We talked about how Jesus held up a cup and he said that this symbolizes a new covenant in my blood. The basis by which people come into a, a proper relationship with the Father is now through my shed blood. And when a person is chosen by the Father and drawn to Christ and to faith by the Spirit, and they put their faith in Jesus, they're cleansed by his blood. And when the Father looks down upon us, he sees the blood of his Son. And he says, you're saved. You're redeemed. You're justified. You're innocent. My son's payment is sufficient for your situation. Four concluding sentences. What the world has to say about you 
is nothing in importance and in comparison to what the Father has to say about you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you haven't just been accepted. You just didn't squeak in. You've been chosen. Your salvation is secure because it's the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And finally, your condition in the world might be a bit shaky, a bit tenuous, but your position with God can't be better. But understand this. Our position creates our condition. It's because of your faith in Jesus Christ that you're being mistreated by the world that you live in. And Peter understands it's not easy. We want to be popular. We don't want to be considered strange. We want to be accepted. Living out our faith boldly and loudly loudly is a tough decision. But I go back to what Daryl said a number of weeks ago. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Even if it means being considered a stranger in this world. Is, Is Jesus enough? Or do we want a little bit of the world too? If we're going to survive and thrive in this world, living out our faith boldly and loudly, we have to begin with the foundation of grasping the greatness of our salvation. Billy Graham said something just before, not, I don't know how long before he died, but he said this, I'm prepared to die. In fact, I'm looking forward to it. And when you are prepared to die, you're also prepared to live. Billy Graham grasped the greatness and the hope of his salvation to the point that he could say, I'm prepared to die. And because he was prepared to die, he was prepared to live. Mike.